Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, mate, when you're ready, let's get going. Yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My very special guest today is Moses Kagan. He's a co-founder and a partner at Adaptive Realty. They've got some really interesting approaches to buying, developing, holding real estate. He's based in Los Angeles along with me. I'll be talking to him right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hi, Moses. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Very well, thanks too. I, I've been following you along on Twitter, which is how I discovered you. Uh, uh, agree with your philosophy of investment matches my own really closely. So I just wanted to sort of talk about how you implement that in real estate when this podcast and my own interests are mostly uh, equity listed on the stock market. Um, so let's start with what is adaptive and um, why did you form it? Sure. So uh, Adaptive is a real estate private equity firm, a tiny one in the grand scheme of things. Uh, our business is that we buy, uh, renovate, and manage uh, apartment buildings in Los Angeles. Um, the, the kind of assets that we target are, are what I would call sub-institutional scale, uh, which means you know typically kind of under $10 million total capitalization between buying and renovating the buildings. And uh, a number of things probably set us apart from other real estate private equity shops, but I think the most important one and maybe the reason that we're talking today is that we are effectively permanent holders of real estate. So uh, we can get more into what that means, but, but basically we're not flipping stuff. We're buying, fixing up, and refinancing it and just holding it uh, indefinitely. So how, how, do you, how do you achieve that? How do you become a permanent holder? Well, um, I mean, there, I guess there's a, there's a couple of parts to that question. Um, one is like, how do you arrive at that strategy sort of philosophically? Uh, and then the other part of it is how do you convince other people to come along with you? Um, maybe, maybe let's unpack it and start with the, the philosophical part first Please. and then we'll go. Okay. So, um, so I guess maybe the first thing to say is that the state, let's, let's kind of describe what a standard real estate private equity firm does that, you know, you raise money. Um, if you're big, you raise money from pension funds and endowments and everything. Uh, you buy some real estate, you spend a year, a couple of years adding value to it, fixing it up, raising the rents. Um, and then you, and then you sell it, uh, as quickly as you can. Cause what you're trying to do in that scenario is maximizing IRR right. and the way you maximize IRR is, uh, you use as much debt as you possibly can, and you flip the thing as quickly as you can. Right. And right. Uh, and that's so that's kind of and it and it works out really well for the for the sponsor, the guy who's putting the deal together, because uh, of course he gets to crystallize he or she uh, gets to crystallize their promote um, their promoted interest, the thirty percent, twenty five percent, twenty percent, whatever it is that the promoter is getting for putting the deal together. He gets that as soon as he sells the asset. So that's the that's the the, uh, the 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 thought process and the and the incentive structure that normal real estate private equity firms uh, operate under. Um, so so what's the problem with that? Why are we inclined to do things differently than uh, you know than than others? Um, 
I think the answer to that is, uh, first of all, you want to look at the investor base. And um, when you're Blackstone, you're raising from a bunch of pension funds and endowments who don't pay taxes, maximizing pre-tax IRR is like the, obviously the smart thing to do. There's no question, right? But if you're raising money from taxpayers like high net worths and family offices, tax is really important. And it takes a huge whack out of your out of, out of profits. So that's the that's the first thing to say. Another thing to say is like I'm a big believer in the illiquidity premium. I mean that that like concept makes sense to me that that you ought to be rewarded by the market for for buying assets that uh, you can't quickly liquidate. So real estate is like the like a perfect example of an illiquid asset, right? Like you, it's you can't trade in and out of it easily. You, in fact, you incur transaction costs. Like in Los Angeles, I probably would underwrite like a seven to eight percent whack on a transaction cost whack every time you sell something. So if you're like going in and out of things, you're basically like you 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 should be getting your liquidity premium, but you're you're paying this transfer tax effectively. I mean it's literally a tax, but also all kinds of other you know, brokerage costs and escrow and title and all these other costs associated with going in and out. And so that has the effect of sort of counteracting the the illiquidity premium that you should be getting. Okay. So there, so it's so there's there's the tax consequences, then there's the, the consequences of of the transaction costs. So um so philosophically, uh, looking at that, um, uh, uh, I look at that and I say, well, well, wait a second. I mean, if you own asset assets in a, uh, in a in a really good market, I mean, I, what I'm about to say, I don't think applies to like some tertiary market somewhere. I'm not going to pick on anyone, but where there's not a lot of population or job growth. So, so what I'm saying now is specifically for like really good markets that have diver big diverse economies with lots of people and lots of action. Is that LA or is that cities within LA or how do you think about yeah, that? I think, I mean, it's certainly for LA, uh, I, I would say the entire LA Metro probably fits into this description, but so does San Francisco. So does New York. I mean, obviously, uh, in the midst of this pandemic that we're in, like it, that's, that's that some of the effect that I'm talking about kind of slows down a little bit. But as we'll see a little later in the conversation, like even in the midst of this, rents are rents and leasing and everything are holding up incredibly well because people fundamentally want to be where opportunity is, and and LA is one of one of the places where there's a lot of opportunity. So if you own a high quality asset in an area where there is a lot of economic dynamism. Your rent, and particularly if there's supply constraints, in other words, it's hard to build there. Your rents are, and, and therefore values are going to tend to to grow at a rate that exceeds inflation. Okay, that's it's really important that you think about it in real terms and not nominal terms, because you can see rent growth in, in lots of markets, but it, but obviously if it's if it's trailing inflation or whatever, it's not real 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 growth. Um, if you're in a market like that, why are you selling? <laughs> like what families do when they own really good assets in a market like that is they hold on to it and over time they refinance and they pull capital out and maybe they redeploy, they buy something else, but they don't sell. Uh, and, and so philosophically, when we were sort of starting Adaptive and thinking about what we wanted to offer prospective partners, the thought process was very much like, look, we want to create a firm that allows limited partners to own real estate with us the way that a smart family would own real estate. And, uh, and that's kind of the, that, that, that was the genesis of the kind of the philosophy of the permit hold. So, so if just, just, if they, if the family itself wants to move in or out of the real estate and you're the controlling, uh, 
partner, uh, sure. how, how do they then achieve, how do they achieve some liquidity? Yeah, let's talk about that, I guess. Um, cause there's, there's the, and that, that kind of dovetails with the second part of what I was saying, which is like, how do you, how, like, like, so philosophically you want to be a long-term holder. Like what, how do you get investors? Mechanically, practically, how do you implement that? So, um, Let's. Uh, I guess the first thing to say about the way we do deals, it's very different from from a standard real estate private equity firm. Is we do not uh, we do not use any debt on the way into these deals. So we always buy all cash, uh, and there are some huge benefits to doing that. We we because we can um, close quickly, and because there's certainty, we don't have an appraiser or a bank or whatever causing problems. When I say we're going to pay three million dollars or five million dollars, whatever for this asset, uh, we can pay. Like there's no, there's no, there's no other gating factor. Um, so, so we buy all cash. We frequently, and this is going to drive some people crazy when they hear this. We, we frequently fund the renovations of the buildings in cash too. Sometimes we'll use like low leverage bridge loans. Um, you know, maybe like 30% of the total cost of the project, not more. And if you, I mean, that may sound sort of normal to public markets investors, but if you ask, um, like a, someone who does real estate deals, whether they would be cool with using like 30% leverage on a project, they would look at you like you're out of your mind. It's not right? enough. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, we have, uh, uh, it is, there, there are um, bridge lending firms out there, uh, I'm talking to someone about buying distressed loans right now, uh, who as a standard practice, we're loaning people 75 to 80% of the total cost of the project. Like that is a normal thing that people were doing. And as you can imagine, Right now, a lot of those loans are not, uh, let's say, performing well. And that's, and that's why you don't do it. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, there's a number of reasons, but but the main thing is, yeah, we don't we. The, if you own real, if you own a good asset in a good market, okay, there's not that much that can go wrong as long as you manage it like semi intelligently and you don't use a lot of debt. If you use a lot of debt, you, it's, just, it's just like using a lot of margin in the stock, in the stock market. Like if you use a lot of debt, then when you have economic calamities like the kind we're going through right now, and your rents come down, you cannot service your debt, and then you become a forced seller into a market where right. you do not want to force seller. And so that, that is, that's the risk in, in, when, in dealing with like real estate in, in, in good locations. Like, I, again, this doesn't apply to like some random place, but if you're in a great market, if you're in LA or San Francisco, New York, like as long as you're not a forced seller, you're probably going to do fine. Like there's a question of, did you buy the right thing at the right price? And do you manage it better or worse? And there's all those things, of course, matter a ton, but like fundamentally, as long as you can buy and not be forced to sell at the wrong time, you're probably going to be, you're probably going to be okay. Um, anyway, sorry for the, the kind of the detour there. So we, uh, buy all cash. We use very small, either no, no debt to fund the renovations or small amounts of debt. When the property is done, we retenant it. And at that point, we will go to the bank and say, hey, look, Mr. Banker, here's the new rent roll, here's the new pro forma net operating income, the new, the, the new unlevered cash flow that the property will throw off. Please value this according to market comps and give us a, a reasonable loan against this asset that we own. And um, depending on how well we've done our job, in other words, how much value we've created, like the the the, the one way to think about this is like one plus one equals three. Like, you know, it sounds weird. The building is worth, when we're done with it, considerably more than the total amount that we have invested in it. 
It's, it, I've read this a million times in books along the way, and until I did this the first time, I like I was like, does this really work like this? But it really does. Like if you you can buy a building for a million, put a million into it, and have a bank come and tell you it's worth three million, and that's just because the appraisal is done on the cash flow, and if you've done a good job of um, raising of, of renovating the building in a way that raises rents, that you can get the building valued at a price that has, or a value that has nothing to do with the with the amount that you put into to creating the building. Um, and then in that scenario, like ordinarily what people do is sell it, right? Okay, I put it, I'm in, I put 2 million in, it's worth 2.8 or whatever the number is. I'm just going to sell it and we're going to take our money. Okay. What we do is we say, hey, look, Mr. Banker, the building's worth whatever it is, you know, 3 million would be ridiculous. That's it. We've had a 50% uplift before, but that's would be extraordinarily rare. More likely you're like in a 30%, 40% uplift is like, what would be a great deal. Um, and, uh, and you just say, hey, look, can I get a loan for 65% of the value, maybe 70% of the value of this asset? And the bank takes a look at the numbers and they, they look at the interest rate that they're loaning at and, and what they're comfortable with. And they, they typically get pretty comfortable that they'll loan you 65% of that new appraised value. Well, it just so happens that 65% of the new higher value allows you to pull out like almost all of the capital that you put into the deal. In many cases, we've been able to pull all of the capital out. And, and what we do once we've pulled the capital out is distribute that back to the investors, and that's what's called a, a debt finance distribution, and subject to a whole bunch of limits, and consult your CPA and tax attorney and all that stuff before you take what I'm about to say to heart, subject to all these limits, that is a tax-free distribution. Like, so you, 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 we put all this money and buy, fix up the building, we get this loan, we basically get you know, somewhere between 80 and 100% of the capital back out, we hand it to the investors tax-free, okay? Thereafter, asking the investors to hold the asset permanently is not so painful. You've, what you've done by giving them their money back is dramatically reduce the opportunity cost of holding that thing. It's not like they have all their capital tied up in this asset and you're asking them to hold it forever. You're saying, hey, you got 85% of your money back or whatever it is, uh, and by the way, we're earning a very high levered return on the small sliver of equity that we've left in the deal. So you feel you, you feel good about what you've left in the deal. But meanwhile, you have the rest of the money back and you can you know, either give it back to us and we go buy another building or you put it in the stock market and do whatever else you want uh, uh, with it. But but that's so, so mechanically. Yes, we're at we're, we're we are um, asking investors to ride with us for a very long time. But your question was, how do they get liquidity? The answer is they get the liquidity pretty quickly because they get back almost all of their money within give or take 18 months or something like that of, of buying a building. So how are you making that assessment? How are you uh, working out approximately what you think you can get the valuation to, where you can get the rents? Uh, why is it available to buy at this sort of lower price? Is it that kind of yeah. idea? So in, in a public market, you'd be trying to buy an asset or trying to buy an equity on its assets and then you're trying to sell it basically on its income or not sell it as the case may be in your case. But is that the, is that the idea or, or how are you making those assessments? Yeah, the way that we think about it is not primarily in terms of the value uh, when we're done. And the reason is I don't know what the value is going to be. Like I can't, I don't have, I, I don't know what interest rates are going to be like. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know what the market for properties is going to be like 18 months from now or whatever uh, after we finish the, the project. Um, so what I'm doing is thinking about the unlevered yield. 
And um, that's like a, it's a little bit of an idiosyncratic way of talking about it. A lot of people in real estate use the term cap rate. Cap rate is basically just you divide the, the, the cash, ignore the mortgage, ignore any kind of debt financing. You just take the, the cash flow from the, the rents minus the operating expenses, and then you divide it by the total cost of the project or the price to buy the building over. So, um, and you get like a percent yield and like normal for the market, you know, until three weeks ago or whatever was, you know, in LA, maybe it was like a four and a half or 5% yield. So if you bought a building with a million dollars, you would sort of be expecting to get 45,000, 50,000 in, 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 in net operating income. So that's like, that's how the market kind of works. Um, what we try to do is we are looking for projects where the pro forma unlevered yield exceeds the rate at which we can borrow, the interest rate at which we can borrow on the project by at least 200 basis points and ideally 250 basis points. So let's just maybe like we can unpack that one a little bit because it's a little complicated. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so um, why are we doing that? Well, when you borrow on a uh, multifamily asset in Los Angeles, there's a 30-year amortization period on the loan. So the 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 cost to you of the money because you have to amortize a loan. It's not an interest-only loan like I think maybe the way a lot of corporate loans are like. You, generally speaking, you have to amortize the loan. So even so, a four percent interest rate loan doesn't. It feels to you like it's more like a six. Does that make sense? Because yeah, it, because you're amortizing the loan. So the so the reason we think about things in terms of trying to get to an unlevered yield, which is a two hundred to two hundred fifty basis points premium over what we expect to be the interest rate at which we expect to be able to borrow is because that will give us positive leverage once we refinance. In other words, that puts us into a situation where even though the loan is amortizing and therefore costs more than the interest rate, when we borrow, the, the yield on whatever equity remains in the deal will be higher the more that we borrow as opposed to lower. Right. Does that make sense? You're yeah. positive leverage. Okay. So, so, you know, there's a bunch of uncertainty there too. Like who knows what interest rates are going to be like in 18 months. You know, you, you can't, this isn't an exact science, but the most important thing from, from our perspective is in extremis, we want our LPs to be able to feel comfortable owning the property unlevered. Okay. This is again, this is like real estate heresy. Like people are like, what do you mean own a property unlevered? Like this is your crazy person. We started in the business in like 2008, nine, when literally you could not get loans sometimes. Like a bank would be like, we don't care. We're not lending. And actually today, like right now, you, even banks that I have like long relationships with, I've done tons of loans with, they're like, well, me, you know, we'll quote you a month from now. Like we want, we like the asset. We know you guys, but the, like, there are times, including the one we're in right now, where the debt markets basically stop functioning or at least stop functioning normally. And so in extremis, we love to be able to tell our LPs, hey, you know what? Uh, we can't borrow right now. It sucks. Like we couldn't control the debt markets. I can't tell the banks to loan me money. Doesn't matter what the 10 year is doing. Uh, we have a six and a half unlevered return right now. Six and a half percent unlevered return on the on the uh, uh, on the capital that we've invested in this deal. Like, sucks for me as the promoter, and I'll explain why in a second. But like from the LP's perspective, hey, 
you own a good asset in an improving neighborhood in Los Angeles and you're earning a six and a half, like you can kind of live with that for six months or a year or a couple of years if you have to. Again, it's not good for me because I get, the way that these things are structured, I really don't start to participate in the profits uh, until the investors get back all of their money and kind of a preferred return on it for the time that I had it. So it's not, it's very bad for me not to return capital. It delays the time, it delays by years when I'm gonna get to start to see uh, uh, cash flow from that building. But from the investor's perspective, it's like, look, our downside is that we ended up, you know, at a six or a six and a half or something unlevered and our money's tied up there for as long as it takes the debt market to reopen. And again, maybe that's six months or a few months or who knows, but that's not a disaster. What's a disaster is if you have an 80% LTV or loan to cost construction loan and the rents have come down and the debt market's closed and your loan is coming due and you're a forced seller because you can't refinance and you can't sell and you can't service the debt. That's a disaster. With our stuff, it's it's like the debt market uh, seizing up is is bad for me, but but it's it's tolerable from from our LPs' perspective. And so, from their perspective, it's good to you're heavily incentivized to get the capital back out because that's how you get paid. So you get some share of the. Is it so you're you're paid on the return on the equity that remains in the once they've got their. No, we, the way it works is um, we, uh, and this is a very like standard real estate private equity structure. Things have got many, um, many sponsors have kind of got to these like increasingly Baroque structures over the last like three, four or five years because, um, because LPs were so thirsty for yield, they were willing to tolerate sponsors doing a lot of stuff that I would regard as maybe arguably a little shady. We have always been really plain vanilla um, with respect to the structuring and the structuring is basically like, look, uh, you give us your money, uh, we accrue some preferred return on it. Like typically it's been somewhere between five and 8% simple interest, depending on the, which deal and which fund and everything. Um, we accrue that, uh, uh, we can't pay at the beginning because there's no cash flow from the building. Like we're, it, we've ripped it to shreds. We're, we'll talk about that, I imagine, in, in a little while. You know, there is no cash flow on these buildings while we're doing the renovations. So there's, we can't, there's no cash to pay. Um, so we accrue that craft for the year, year and a half it takes to, uh, to finish the project. And, uh, and then, so the, the order of the distributions, so, so there are going to be distributions from refinancing and then there's distributions from just the operating cash flow from collecting the rents and paying the expenses and the mortgage and you've got some cash, you can give it to the investors. The, the order of the distributions is first to retire accrued pref, then to return capital and then once you've zeroed out all the capital, typically the investors will get 70% of whatever remains and we get 30%. So if you think about it a while, it's, it's a little, it's kind of like the investors are, are like loaning us money at like seven or 8% or whatever it is. I'm like almost like a credit card. And in exchange for doing that, once we've pay them back both the principal and the interest, they own 70% of the building. They get this kicker, which is they own 70% of the building. And for us, we get a little bit of a fee, like a one-time fee, but basically what we're doing it for is because once this whole thing works out, like four or five, six years from now, we'll own 30% of the building. Right. And, Do you continue then, to manage the building at, yeah. that, at that point? Yeah, so we have, um, we, uh, we're fairly vertically integrated. So we have a, a internal property management organization. Um, we didn't want to do that. When we, first, when we started, um, uh, 
I went out to try to convince other, to try to find some other property management companies to, to hopefully manage for us. And the first thing that happened was uh, those management companies laughed at me when I told them what rents I needed to get. They were just like, you can't get those rents. And I was like, I know you can get these rents. These units are amazing. We did such a good job renovating them. The location's much cooler than you think it is. We can get these rents. And they said, no. So, okay, so we had to do the leasing. Uh, and then, um, over the course of the last like 10 years of doing this, um, I have had occasion a couple of times for various reasons to hire other property management companies. And um, the, the quality of the service that the tenants were getting and, and more importantly, the quality of the record keeping, the financial record keeping, uh, left a lot to be desired. And so from my perspective, if I'm going to take millions and millions and millions of dollars from, um, from LPs, I can't turn around and hand that asset to, you know, their asset that we, you know, we bought with their money to some property management company who, whose execution and, and record keeping I don't trust. So for a really long time, uh, we ran the property management as a loss making business. So we were making money on our deal fees. We were, uh, waiting for our three, four, five years, whatever, to get into our ownership stake. And meanwhile, my partner and I were subsidizing the management of the building. We were taking our deal fees and using it to pay salaries to for the people to manage the buildings because the, the property management company was subscale. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. Is it a scale, it's a scale business, right? Yeah, exactly. So it took us until, and we have our units get like very premium rents. Like we, we run, it's a high end property management company. Um, but it took us until approximately 400 units under management uh, until the management started breaking even. So that was probably five years, six years into Adaptive's history where my partner and I would just like every month, and we were not, we were kind of broke for at least particularly the beginning chunk of that. And we were literally like taking our deal fees and using it to subsidize property management on behalf of rich people. It was not a, like, not a great feeling. Um, but when we were at like 650 units now, so when it crossed 400 units, it started to be like a profitable thing. And, 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 and we're very happy to own it now because the property management revenue covers the expense associated with the entire platform. So we have 11 employees. Uh, four of them are direct property management people, and then we've got accountants, and we've got um, construction oversight people, and I've got an acquisitions guy who works with me. Um, uh, uh, the property management revenue covers all of those people's salaries and the rent and the insurance and everything. So it provides sort of a level of stability to the platform where if we don't do a deal for a year, it wouldn't, I mean, it's not good for me personally, like I would prefer to have money as opposed to not, but we're not like, uh, we're not hostage to the market. We don't have to do deals if we don't want to do them because of that property management revenue. So I, I read in your, uh, I read in your brochure that you're, you're vertically integrated. So I, I, so, and I know that your partner is a, he's a contractor uh, in addition to being a, a, I think, real estate agent for California, I saw. Yeah. So got, what does that mean? What, what does, what does that vertical integration mean in that context? Yeah, so, so like there, there, uh, there are different, there are a lot of different ways to do real estate, private equity. Like one way of doing it is to be um, a guy or a couple guys in an office and you find, you look all over the place, you find deals, 
and then you go there are like JV equity platforms you can go to. So you go you you get the deal under contract, you go pitch it to Carlisle or any one of a number of there's like an infinite number of these JV equity platforms that invest money on behalf of pension funds and endowments and high net worths and everything. Um, and that capital is very expensive, but you can get it. If you have a good institutional quality, you can get it. So you don't have to have like any relationship with your LPs. You can just go out in the market. Okay. And you can outsource the general contracting you, and you can hire an owner's rep to oversee the general contractor. And then you can hire a property management firm to do the leasing and the management. And you can actually outsource all of your accounting to their like uh, fund uh, accounting companies that just do that. So that would be like a totally non-integrated company. We are like the opposite of that. We are, we're, first of all, we're not like looking all over the world for assets. We are, we, we believe very strongly that there are enormous advantages and we can talk about them to being extremely focused in the areas on, on like specific neighborhoods. Um, second, we, the kind of contractors that we hire to get the construction pricing that we get, like, they're not institutional quality contractors. <laughs> These are like, because the institutional quality contractors cost twice as much and we're so focused on the numbers. So we're dealing with imperfect contractors. We're, we're leasing, you know, buildings where literally when we lease up a building, it's not just like, oh, what should we charge for a two bedroom? It's like we walk into each of the apartments and differentially price them based on the like, light coming into that unit and the how much private outdoor space this unit has. It's all like about these, there's no, there's no such thing in our business as like someone having a 50% better thing. Like you, you don't, it's a game of inches and, and what you need to do or what we need to do to, to generate the kind of returns that we've generated is to crank each dial up 10% be 10% better at acquiring, and that's why we buy all cash, be 10% better at design, and my partner lays out by hand, like with a pen and white out, what each of the units is gonna, is gonna be. Be 10% or whatever cheaper on the construction by hiring constr you know, contractors who are maybe imperfect, but with whom you have long-term relationships. Do the leasing a little bit better. Like Each of these things independently is like, you know, it's just a small advantage, but the agglomeration, the accumulation of a bunch of small advantages is what gives us the, you know, what I would like to think is sort of uh, super normal returns. Right. And so just to return to, let's talk about the neighborhoods. You describe it in your brochure as being hyper local. So what, what, what does that mean and how do you achieve that practically? Yeah. So um, a couple of things to say about that. The first thing is we're, we're like, as I said before, we're super quantitative. So we're constantly running like a very simple equation on very many deals all every day and the equation is basically just like uh unlevered yield so like uh forecast annual rents minus forecast annual operating expenses divided by the cost of buying and renovating the building and as i said we're looking for that number to to be approximately 200 250 basis points higher than the interest rate at which we think we can borrow on the asset so that's the equation super simple we build the simplest models in the history of the world people uh sometimes people ask me to like we've had investors, like particularly these JV equity guys, we've talked to them. We don't do business with them really, but we they come to us sometimes, and sometimes we talk about deals. 
And they're like, can you send me your model? And I send them this one page, super simple model. We don't do like 10 year forward projections. We don't do, because like who knows what rents are gonna be 10 years, how, how would I know? Um, anyway, people look at our models and they're like, this is what, like, what do you got, you know, why, this is too simple. But like, it, anyway, this works for us. So, um, so, so we're constantly running uh, uh, properties through that model every day. I mean, mo- obviously, most of the time we can just look at it right away and say that doesn't work. But, but there are enough surprising outcomes that you that we do have to model a bunch of stuff every day. Um, the the you asked about the neighborhoods, and so the question is like, what are the inputs into that very simple model, right? Like. The, the key is not is, is the model is simple, but the key is the quality of the inputs, right? And so the inputs are, well, you know what price you can buy the building for. That's like, you know, that's out there. The guy's marketing the property. The broker comes, tells you what the price is. You have to estimate what it's going to cost. You know, for, you have to figure out, first of all, what are you going to do to this thing? And we do crazy stuff to buildings. Uh, uh, what are you going to do to it? Uh, which is a creative process, like a, it's like junior architecture stuff. Um uh, what is it going to cost to do that to the building? What are the rents going to be and what are the operating expenses going to be? Like, that's it. Those are the inputs, right? Um, we, because we are doing construction all the time, we know what the construction price is going to be. In fact, when we, when we, um, uh, tore a building before buying it, we bring the contractors who have done 40 projects for us in the past and we make them quotes so we know, like, we, we, we can hold them to those quotes more or less if we, as long as we don't change what we're going to do the building subsequently. So we know what it's going to cost to do the thing we want to do. Uh, and it's not like, it's not like a, uh, you know, just like, oh, $100 a square foot or $50 a square foot or whatever, you know, whatever. it's not like some simple back the envelope thing. It's like we get quotes from the plumber about what it's going to cost to do the plumbing. Okay, so we, and, and because we're kind of getting, we're signing construction contracts all the time, like I'm renovating 10 buildings right now. So I am, like I'm, I have two projects that are in bidding right now. Like I know what construction costs for these kind of projects. And so we're, that's the information that's getting fed into those simple models. What are the operating expenses? Well, we've been doing this for like 10 years. And so we have, we can just look back at what it actually costs to run these buildings. And by the way, when you do, we do full gut renovations generally where uh, we're replacing the plumbing and the electric and everything. And so um, you can be tempted in the initial years to underwrite very low operating expenses because you're obviously you're going to have fewer problems with a brand new building than you would with an older one. But now that we've started to sort of own these things for 10 years, you start to kind of have you, you can't fool yourself about what it actually costs to run the thing. So we kind of try to look back and say, you know, it's going to be the, the operating expenses are going to be low in the initial years and then they're going to kind of rise in the out years. And so like we kind of have, we need to take like more of like a normalized view about what this is going to look like in the, you know, over the, in the initial 10 years of ownership or something. Um, and then crucially, and this is now we're getting to your neighborhood thing because the, the, the construction prices and the operating expenses don't change. It doesn't matter if I'm doing a deal in Compton or if I'm doing it in Beverly Hills, it's going to be the same. Uh, what matters is the rents and you can easily easily fool yourself into doing a dumb deal by missing on your rent projections by even like 200 bucks a door because the way that these things work is you know 200 bucks times x number of units times 12 months it 
it, it actually and it, it it can swing the value, the cash flow, and, the, and therefore the value, the yield, and the value an, an enormous amount. And so what we're doing is we have a portfolio of 650 similarly renovated buildings in probably six neighborhoods, seven neighborhoods. So I personally set all of the asking rents. When, when a unit becomes vacant, I'm the one who decides what we're going to charge for it, and I'm the one who approves all the tenants. So I know, like minute to minute, like literally, like I have, I woke up this morning to tenant applications. Like I, I know what people are and are not willing to pay for for our kind of two bedrooms in these different neighborhoods. And so when a property comes up for sale in a neighborhood that in which we are currently doing business, I know what the purchase price is, I know what the construction price is, I know what the opex is, and I damn well better know what the rents are because I'm leasing similarly renovated two bedrooms around the corner and a few blocks away and whatever all the time, okay? So, so even on the existing neighborhoods we already do business, we have this incredible informational advantage, right? And we exploit it, okay? The problem is how do you go into a new neighborhood where you don't have the same level of information about the rents? Because then you're guessing a little bit. And so what we end up doing is we're constantly looking across the LA metro area. Like we're, I mean, I run numbers on neighborhoods. I run numbers on hundreds of deals in neighborhoods where we've never done deals, right? Because what I'm looking for is, I'm looking for deals where I can not sandbag the projected rents. Like I'm not gonna, like, I'm not putting them so low that I that it's a hurdle that I can step over. But I want to be really confident that I can hit those rents when I'm done with the renovation. So in a neighborhood where we don't do a lot of business, what I'm doing is being extra conservative on my projections. And what that's going to do is it's going to cause us um, to to it's going to cause the threshold for doing a deal in a new neighborhood to be higher than the threshold right. for doing an existing neighborhood. And so what that means is um, we can look at a neighborhood for years and we can't do anything there. When we find a deal that works, we'll fi- then we'll find one that's great. That's it's like such a good deal that like even despite the more conservative underwriting, it makes sense to do it. We buy that deal. Then once we're operating that building and we have some more certainty regarding the rents, then we very frequently find other deals in the same neighborhood that work. Like oh okay, you can get this for a two bedroom. Okay, this deal over here works now. So it's it it. It's been like this slow process of sort of buying into a neighborhood, then expanding there, then finding a deal in another neighborhood, expanding there, and so and it's so it's 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 very uh, uh, quantitatively driven, I guess you would say. And what neighborhoods are you in in Los Angeles now? Yeah, mostly on the east side, um, and uh, you know some kind of uh, like West Adamsy, like um, uh, like mid city West Adamsy areas. But like, honestly, I mean, I would do deals on the moon if they made sense. Like, no, I mean, you know, it's not, we, we and we- It's and we not mi- so much the location, it's just, it's how well you know it. Yeah, yeah well, it's right. It's, I mean, it's, it's what is, I mean, because given that construction pricing and operating expenses are basically flat across all these different neighborhoods, the only variables that matter are what are the purchase prices and what kind of rents can you underwrite? That's it. There's no, like, it's not, and so- 
the, but the balance between those two things is constantly changing. And so I'll, I'll give you an example of a neighborhood where I would love to buy more stuff, but I can't right now. So we went into Highland Park. I think we did our first deal in Highland Park, which is a neighborhood in Northeast LA. Awesome neighborhood. Everyone who's in New York right now and wondering where they should move, should move to Highland Park. <laughs> um, it's like super, I mean, let's hope all the retail survives because it's like super walkable and just like awesome. Awesome, enough density to be like a, interesting small apartment buildings, but also lots of single family homes. Walkable retail, so dope. Um, we did our first deal there, uh, I think in 2013. And um, we were doing, we actually did it as a fee project where we didn't, this was back in the old days, we couldn't even raise enough money for the scale of the opportunity. So we did a lot of deals where we didn't have ownership stake. We just got uh, fees for doing it. Um, so we did this deal. A 16 unit building and we were underwriting 1350 for two bedrooms there and by the time we leased it up we leased the whole building up in two weeks at 1650 and it was like oh <laughs> and then i bought everything that wasn't nailed down there for <laughs> and i like went around and, and this luckily at that point you know most we were at that point able to raise a bit more money and so we were able to actually have ownership stake and we bought you know we, we now have hundreds of units in highland park uh and the rents have continued to rise and those deals have done incredibly okay i can't buy stuff in highland park anymore like every once in a while i'll pick off a small deal because i have you know relationship with a broker or whatever but like that that era of being able to just like run around and buy everything that's over and it's been over for probably like three years or something um, so, uh, uh, so, so the, so what I'm saying is that, and the reason it's over is because they started printing, uh, articles in the LA times about how cool Highland Park was. And so, the, curbed yeah, LA too. yeah, curbed, you know, and I was stupid in early in my career. I used to jump up and down and tell, tell people, people about it. <laughs> such an idiot. Yeah. I got incredibly stupid stories about dumb stuff I did like that. Um, uh, but yeah, so the rents would be, you know, continue, have been, climbing there but it's just the purchase prices went crazy and so the the equations out of whack and we can't buy stuff there um and so but and then there are other examples of neighborhoods that i'm not going to name where uh they were the 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 equation was in balance and we bought a bunch of stuff and then the equation went out of balance and we couldn't but then the rents kind of came back up and then we could again and then we started buying more there so it's 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 all about like just constantly feeding back the information that we're getting from the existing management portfolio back through this equation about, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, that we're using to underwrite new deals and then constantly seeing, okay, can we make this work? No, but what about over here? But, and, and that's, that's, that's the process. Yeah. That's super interesting. In your, just going back to your brochure, one of the, the things that I found most interesting, you've got this page where you say, these are the things we ignore. And the first thing that you ignore is the rent growth forecast, which I, I, I completely understand that because that's something that I try to do too. I basically ignore growth because I think it's kind of, it's much, much harder to predict than super hard to underwrite. So just, I, I'll take you through them or, you, or you, if you can do it from memory, but the, you start with the no, no growth forecast. So you're looking at that on, on the yield basis as you buy it. Yeah, let me let me just jump in there, and maybe maybe you you can say the things, and I'll respond to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, let's do that. Yeah, so um, the, here's the thing about rent growth. Okay, uh, 
if you look at like a crowdfunding real estate site or basically any pitch from a, from a sponsor, what you're going to see is uh, 10 year projections. It's just like standard in the business. And they're, they're going to say, we're going to buy this building. We're going to do whatever to it. Here's what the rents are going to be. Here's how they're going to grow over 10 years. And then we're going to sell the building. Usually it's some multiple that's higher than what we bought it for. Let's leave that aside for a minute. And then you DCF it back and that's how you get a really high. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, like we're going to grow rent at a very reasonable 3% a year compounding and we're going to grow expenses at a very reasonable 2% a year. doesn't sound that crazy. Okay. Almost any deal, if you grow rents faster than expenses over 10 years and you use a bunch of debt, and by the way, you would then forecast a multiple that is higher than what you paid for the building, the numbers are going to look good. It's like not like it's, it's, it's obvious that they're going to look good. And so you can do that and talk yourself into doing a lot of stupid stuff. Meanwhile, like I, the following things I know to be true about Los Angeles rents. Over the last X number of decades, they have grown faster than inflation. Okay, like Los Angeles 100 years ago was like a dusty town with like unpaved roads. Like the, rents have been growing like crazier. But I also know that in any particular year, specifically like this one, rents can go down. And they can go down by like, you know, I came into the business like right before the last one of these, and rents came down like 15, 20%. And then what they did is they grew very quickly thereafter, and like if you look at the long-term trend line, it's still, you know, the growth has been great. But if you condition your deals on steady, linear 3% rent growth, you may very likely find yourself to be uh, uh, to be wrong and to have talked yourself into doing something that you shouldn't have done. So what we try to say is, look, um, let's get comfortable with the rents where they are now. If they run, fantastic. Like they may come down, that, that may happen, and, and therefore we're going to keep the leverage down so that doesn't kill us if that happens. And they may run, and if they run, great. Like I, I'm not going to turn down high rents. I love high rents. I'm very happy for the rents to go up. But uh, I don't want to allow future forecasts about rent to talk me into doing dumb stuff. Now let me just say as a kind of a caveat here, uh, if – if I had known over the last 10 years, if I had been able to, to accurately predict the future, right? Like over the last 10 years, rents basically did run. And actually it turns out that the smartest thing to do was to buy the biggest buildings you could, not give a shit about the entry price, and use as much debt as you possibly could, and, uh, and then exit to some nitwit three years down the road. Like that strategy has been, that worked really well, okay? But one of the things, and this is sort of, uh, this is like a Howard Marks thing, or maybe he got it from somewhere else, but. I really love the concept of um, of like there, there having been different possible worlds that we could live in. Like we've lived in one world where this pandemic happened now instead of five years ago or eight years ago or whatever. But there are a lot of different worlds, and we you know we don't know which one in advance that we're going to get. And so my way of thinking about the things is to to not assume, you know to, to to prepare for a bad scenario, and then look. Obviously, if you get a good scenario, that's a fantastic thing. Um, so, but anyway, that's, that's a long way of explaining why we don't, uh, uh, forecast rents because, because they're unknowable, uh, in the timeframes that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. I think it's the, the same thing has happened in the public equity markets. If you'd been more aggressive and been prepared to pay more for some of these faster growing companies, that's paid very well. Historically, that hasn't been the best way to do it because 
many often, many times you run into some obstacle along the way that prevents you from kind of cashing in the chips at the end and being a little bit more conservative and kind of getting the growth for free or if it materializes, getting it uh, without kind of relying on it has been a better strategy. So yeah, I, I like that approach. So the others, it's sort of, it's all sort of, uh, probably it's all part of the same piece, but you say, you know, we've talked about you don't like debt. You don't. You prefer all cash. You don't think about the exit price, and then you yeah, don't me, calculate let, an IRR. Yeah. Let's talk about the. Let's talk about the exit price. So, like standard real estate private equity modeling. Okay, you've got your ten-year projections, and you're going to exit at a certain price, right? You're going to you're going to plug in a cap rate. You're going to say, oh, I bought at a five cap, and ten years from now, I'm going to sell at a five cap. A lot of times, people are like, I buy at a five cap, but for reasons that I can't explain to you, I'm going to be able to sell it at a four cap or whatever, okay? Which is and a then, 20% improvement, right? Yeah, exactly. So they, and then they, you just take and you divide the forecast, the 10, you know, the net operating income 10 years from now, divide by that forecast and that's your value. And then you can work backwards from the, from there and figure out what your IRR is. Um, for better or worse, I am personally uncomfortable with telling investors, with, with, with promising investors things that I'm not pretty damn sure that I know to be true. And so back in like 2012 and 13, it was possible to buy a building under and underwrite an exit where the you could see a buyer buying it from you like two years, three years later at a price that would make sense for that buyer and you as the seller would do well and the buyer would be buying at a price which was reasonable, okay? Since about 2015, 2016, in my opinion, there has been no way to underwrite an exit at a price which a smart buyer would buy. Now, of course, there are lots of dumb buyers and like you you, you can do well by selling to dumb buyers. Like I, whatever I wanna sell something, I wanna find dumb buyers too. But, but because I have always thought, I, I've, I've just looked at this stuff and it's just been like, look, I, I can't, I, I don't know who the guy is who's going to buy a four cap building and he's going to borrow at four. And so because his loan is amortizing, it's really a six and he's getting next. So he's, he's plunking down a bunch of money to get like a 2% return. Like that, I don't know who that buyer is. And apparently they're out there. But because I have not been willing to, like, I just, I can't, I wouldn't do that. So I'm not going to sit there and tell my investors that I'm certain that I'm going to find some idiot to do that. So I just can't, like, I just, I personally am temperamentally unsuited to a model where I need to tell them that I'm going to sell it at some price on some, at some time in the future. I mean, by the way, the, the cap rates are totally dependent on where interest rates are. So if you're telling someone you're going to exit in four, five, six, ten years, whatever, at a specific cap rate, implicit in that is a forecast about interest rates. And it's like if you can forecast interest rates five, six, seven, ten years from now, like go be an interest rate trader. <laughs> you make a lot more money being an interest rate trader than you can messing around with real estate. Um, and and so so anyway, so that so I have not been willing to underwrite those exit prices and therefore I cannot quote IRRs because the IRRs are obviously dependent on the exit price. And, uh, and, and this has, this has dramatically, dramatically retarded our fundraising over time because 
people, investors are conditioned to be like, oh, I'm under, I'm looking for a mid-teens IRR. I'm looking for a 20 IRR. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Everyone, yeah, that'd be, that'd be awesome, right? Like, but, but like, I'm, and they're like, what, what are your IRRs? I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. I don't know. How would I know? <laughs> like, I, I have no way to tell you what my IRR, like, what I can tell you is we're going to do a deal where the unlevered yield is going to be, you know, a six or a six and a half or a seven. And it's going to be in a market where like people are buying four and a half. So you're, there's definitely value creation and you should probably be okay with holding that thing unlevered. Like we're going to, and then what we're going to do is assuming the debt markets cooperate, we're going to put a bunch of debt on there, like at a, you know, at a, a reasonable amount and get you the vast majority of your money back. And then we're going to hold the thing and good things are going to happen because over a sufficiently long time horizon, we're very confident that the rents will rise faster than inflation. And if you own a good asset in a good area with a reasonable capital structure and you manage it appropriately, like you're going to do well. How well? And, at, and in what time frames? I can't predict and therefore I regard it as intellectually dishonest to, 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 to promise that to anyone. Yeah, it's an interesting hack to think about uh, the, the eventual purchaser of the building being you know, yourself down the road to think about what do you, what would you buy this building for down the road and try and make that fit your own model and then that probably uh, tempers your expectations a little totally. bit. And my, and my, by the way, my partner, I've, we, like he used to try to strangle me. I mean, I, like, I'm kind of metaphorically, but like sometimes close to, to really. Like, it, because it really has impacted our ability to raise money. Like it'd be so much easier to, to say, oh, we're gonna do blah IRR and, and this is like the standard, that's what people are used to, it's a normal thing and that's, what, you know, and, and so our unwillingness to act like that has really slowed down the growth of our business. But like, I only know how to do this the way that I do it. And it's like, I didn't learn, we didn't work anywhere else. My, neither my partner nor I ever worked in another real estate business. So like we, we didn't have people showing us how to do things. So everything from the model we use to the way we deal with contractors to the way we organize our leasing and management, it's all been two reasonably bright people confronted with a question, a problem or whatever, and just like trying to do what seemed smart. And then to the extent that it worked, kept doing it, and to the extent that it didn't work, trying something else. But it was we didn't import a way of doing something from somewhere else. We just figured out what seemed to make sense to us, and this is where we've landed, you know, for better, for better or worse. So, how did you get started? Um, it's that's a little bit of an interesting question. So, um, my parents had always owned uh, uh, like really small buildings, like um, in Troy, New York, where I'm from. You know, like maybe a total of a maximum of 10 units maybe at various points, self-managed. Like, I love my parents. They're super smart. They gave me amazing advantages. Uh, they are not financially sophisticated people. They're just not. They, like, they, didn't, they don't think in terms of lever, unlever. They, they were, in Troy, you could, for a long time, you could basically get a building for free if you're willing to pay the property taxes. I mean, really, it's, Troy's like a decaying industrial town. Like, it's, it's actually come back somewhat since then, but it was pretty awful when I was growing up there. And, um, and so they were just like, they'd get a building basically for free, but they were good at running it. So actually, the things cash flowed really well. Like the, the returns were actually pretty good. Um, so I, anyway, so I grew up, uh, you know, shoveling those buildings out when it snowed. And 
uh, taking messages from prospective tenants when uh, we'd have a vacant unit. They would advertise it in the newspaper. And then we'd get calls. And my mother used to threaten to kill me if I didn't write down the person's name and phone number because like that was going to be an apartment that would stay vacant. And it was a big deal to us if that, if that happened. Um, so there was always like a little bit of that in our, in our family. And so uh, in 2007, uh, my brother and I were in L.A., um, we got the kind of bug that I think everyone got about buying a house. Right? And then we were like, well, we're going to buy a duplex. The two of us are going to live, you know, one in each unit. We start looking at the numbers, totally naive. Uh, the, the numbers were obviously insane. Like it wasn't, we were not experts. We didn't like, it was just like, this is ridiculous. Like you, you would be better. You obviously, it was obviously better to rent one of those two units than to buy the whole building. <laughs> no, because the market was insane. Um, my brother happened to cross a guy who had bought a derelict 16 unit building and renovated it and then run out of money right at the end before he could lease it up. And, um, this is like in, uh, late 2007, early 2008 with help from our parents. Um, we bought that building, um, and finished the renovations and leased it up. And then that was before the market tanked so it was like in some ways it was like the worst time to buy something but what was interesting about it there's a number of interesting things about that experience we can go into if you want but um what was uh i think the, the biggest learnings from that experience were rents can go down by 15 to 20 percent <laughs> <laughs> but if you've only levered to 65 ltv you can survive that like it's it's not pleasant it you may have no cash flow for a few months there right at the absolute bottom. It might get pretty ugly, but uh, uh, you can survive. And so, and, and, and so that whole experience kind of, A, it was obviously our, you know, that was kind of like uh, high school for us in this business. And subsequently we went through college and graduate school. Uh, but, but fundamentally it was like, look, you can buy a deal. You can do like a reasonably smart deal at a terrible time. And as long as you don't use uh, insane amounts of debt, it's going to work out okay. And that has sort of conditioned our thinking uh, uh, all the way, all the way along. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's super interesting. Um... I think we're coming up on time, Moses. If uh, if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, so um, I have a blog that I – well, I used to write it every day. Um, it's called Kagan's Blog, so K-A-G-A-N-S-B-L-O-G.com. I'll, I'll link it up in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, so if you Google my name, you'll find Kagan's Blog is the first thing that comes up. Um, you can join my mailing list there. Um, and uh, and then uh, and I'm also on Twitter, uh, at Moses Kagan. Um, I'm always I'm, – I'm like a big real estate nerd. I, you probably can tell. Yeah, great follow. Great follow on Twitter. I endorse oh, that. I appreciate that. Um, you too. Uh, uh, so I, I, love, I love talking about this stuff. So I'm in touch with tons of people. And honestly, like I'm just being totally transparent. Um, we've met through the blog and then through Twitter and, and this kind of stuff. Like we met, uh, very many of the people who became LPs of ours. Like that, that's kind of like mainly my motivation for doing this stuff. Um, and, but I'm also like, I'm in touch with at this point, probably hundreds of young people who are trying to do their first deal or whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to, it's not like I'm going to spend 20 hours with each of those people, but I'm always happy to look at a deal or look at a deck or, or talk through a thorny problem. Cause Obviously, I was there uh, myself not that long ago, and I didn't, like I said before, I mean, I didn't really have a mentor in the business, so I like to kind of do that as a way of giving back. 
Yeah, that's great. Thank you very much. Moses Kagan from Adaptive Realty. Thanks, Ben.